All right, friends, as you're seated, go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 3. So a little bit of a, a deviation from the norm. The passage Patrick just read was from Exodus. We're going to be in 1 Samuel 3 this morning, and I think you'll see why we've read that passage uh, in just a minute. As you're turning, uh, anytime you have a chance to address a diverse group, recognize that everybody's familiarity with the story is, is different. So even as we're opening our Bibles, it's a really good opportunity for us to rehearse the story kind of rehearse it in our minds, what's happening as we uh, pick up this story. If we really start from the beginning, we understand God creating, God the brilliant creator, the all-holy, the glorious God, creating a world that would reflect his glory, that his character, his attributes would be on display, and he did it in a really cool way. He created people fashioning them in his image such that they would multiply and fill the earth and that this whole cosmos that he makes would reflect his character, that everywhere you look, you would see the glory of God and yet his created image bearers rebel. They deviate from his purpose as they sin. And the natural question then is, how are sinful people, those who've rebelled from God, going to get back to, to God? How are they going to do what he created them to do? How are they going to relate to him? That would be the natural question, but actually the question the Bible answers is the opposite of that. And it's the story of the good news of Jesus. It's not so much how are we going to get back to God, but how is God going to get to us? This is the story of the scriptures. How is God going to save his people? How's he going to bring them back to right relationship with him? And how's he going to position them to do what he created them to do in the first place? And he makes a, a promise in the early chapters of the book of Genesis that one of the ways he's going to do this, or the primary way he's going to do this, is sending a child who is going to ultimately crush the head of the serpent, God's enemy. He is going to uh, do something to eradicate sin and Satan. He's going to do it through this promised one that is going to come. And as we trace the story through the book of Genesis, we're in some ways tracing where's that, where's that child of promise going to come from? And the scope narrows as the book of Genesis plays out. It narrows in Genesis 12 to one family line, uh, Abram, whom God, as an act of grace, calls to himself. It says, I'm going to make you a father of many nations, the root of the nation of Israel. This selecting God, calling a people to himself and, and giving them the great privilege of reflecting his glory, his character. And he to this nation gives the sacrificial system. He gives the law. He gives the, the, the beauty of, of this promise that he would be their God and they would be his People. It's a glorious privilege that he gives to the nation of Israel and their position to, uh, to be a microcosm of what he wants for the entire world, that they would reflect his character and his attributes. But just like their first parents, the nation of Israel continues in perpetual waywardness. They rebel from God's purposes. By the end of the book of Genesis, we have them in slavery in Egypt. And, and, and juxtaposed to this rebellion of the people, we consistently see God's pursuit of his people, him, him going to get them, as it were. And he does it through uh, the story we just read, through raising up Moses, who would be this mouthpiece of God to declare God's rescue mission for his people. 
freeing them from slavery in Egypt and leading this, them to this land of promise where they would be positioned at the crossroads of the nation to, to, to repurpose God's created design, that they would reflect his glory to all the earth, to all the nations. But the people of God continue to rebel. That rebellion continues to get uh, more marked, more depressive as you read the story of the scriptures, though under Joshua's leadership, they're able to take the land of promise. Uh, they continue in this perpetual uh, rebellion from God that's demonstrated in them worshiping false gods, the false gods of the land. And so God continues to raise up these human leaders who call them back to God's rightful purposes. But the people continue to rebel. These human leaders, uh, most specifically right before 1 Samuel, are judges that God appoints uh, to speak his word to his people to remind them of his good purposes. But the rebellion gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And by the time we come to the book of 1 Samuel, the natural question, the temptation that we have is to assume God's just going to give up. He's just going to wring his hands of all of this. He's going to turn, as he did somewhat in the days of Noah, he's going to turn away from his creatures, his created design. But what is God going to do for a wayward people? The answer we're going to see in 1 Samuel is he's going to raise up another person, a prophet, who is going to declare his word to his people. Let's pray as we turn our attention to 1 Samuel 3. Father, we pray that you would give us eyes to see uh, the beauty of your saving activity in the Old Testament. We pray that your stunning persistence to save a uh, wayward and faithless people would bolster our hope and our confidence in your good purposes in our day. We ask for Christ's sake. Amen. I've started a really bad pattern in my sermons through this series. I've named all my kids with the same first letter, and now I'm trapped. Two four-point sermons and another one today, all right? Four big ideas from 1 Samuel 3. By the way, that was a joke. My kids aren't all named with the same thing, but you know you start, and then you're like, they all start with the same letter, so I got to go. So next week, I'm going to preach a 17-point sermon just to prove that they're not all four-pointers. But for right now, we get three four-point sermons uh, in a row. Four big ideas from 1 Samuel Three. And I told you last week that one of the secondary purposes of this series is to help us with uh, reading the Old Testament, these Old Testament stories. So I'm going to use my little um, screen here. If we look in, in 1 Samuel, this is uh, beginning in verse 4. This is actually a chapter uh, that's pretty easy to pick up the main focus of the text. We'll, we'll read the passage together. The Lord called to Samuel. He said, here am I. He ran to Eli and he said, here am I, you called me. I didn't call, Eli replied. Go back and lie down. So he went and lay down. Once again, the Lord called Samuel. Samuel got up, went to Eli and he said, here I am. You called me. I didn't call you, my son. He replied, go back and lie down. Verse 7. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord because the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Once again, for a third time, the Lord called Samuel. He got up, went to Eli and he said, here am I, you called me. Then Eli understood that the Lord was calling the boy, and he told Samuel, go lie down. If he calls, you say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place, and the Lord came, stood there, and called as before. 
So what's this passage about? Well, the text really gives us the, the clue. You could probably pick up on it as I'm reading. Notice the repetition in the language here. Um, this is something that we would see just from basic reading. We see uh, there in the text, I think I can advance the slide maybe here. So we're going to see it 11 times in this passage in just the span of these few verses. Uh, we're going to see this language of calling repeated. 11 times in the span of verses 4 through 10, we see the repetition of the language of call, called, or calling. So what's First Samuel about? How is God calling a people? This text is about the voice of God. How is God speaking to a people? Which then uh, gives us an opportunity to, to ask just a simple reflection question. When's the last time God spoke to you? Was the last time uh, God called you? Now, you'd think this theme would be an easy answer or something easy for us to step into. After all, we're in church. But the question is actually loaded with complexity for most of us, isn't it? The idea of God speaking to us in many of our minds denotes wacky stories of people professing all sorts, doing all sorts of harm under the banner, God told me this or that. It's really unfortunate that we have a hang-up, such a hang-up with the idea of God calling or speaking to us because it's one of the most tender beautiful realities about the God we serve. We have a God in the scriptures who wants to be known, who wants to reveal himself to people. And he doesn't merely do it in an abstract way, like a rational deduction. But he relates to us, John 15 is going to describe it as, as one does a friend. Christianity is relational at its essence. And so for us to experience the vibrancy of relationship with God, it's imperative that we understand how does God talk? And this chapter is going to help us with that idea. So I mentioned four points on God's call, God's voice in our lives. First, God's call is an act of grace. Flip back here. God's call is an act of grace. Start back at the beginning of this chapter. The boy Samuel served the Lord in Eli's presence. You remember our, our characters in the story. Samuel's this promised child that God has provided that's been offered back by Hannah to the Lord to serve in the temple. Eli is the priest who has the wicked sons that we talked about last week. The end of verse 1, In those days the word of the Lord was rare. Prophetic visions were not widespread. One day, Eli, whose eyesight was failing, was lying in his usual place before the lamp of God had gone out. Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was located. And the Lord God called to Samuel. So uh, just at the outset, we have in the Old Testament, the portion of the Bible that, that we're considering over this year, God accomplishes his work in the world by revealing his word to people, most specifically your people that are known as prophets. They function as God's spokesman. And we read an, an, an ominous note there at the start in verse 1. The text tells us that at this time, God isn't speaking much. God, the voice of God is rare. Prophetic visions are lacking. God's quiet. Now, we know in human relationships what this means, don't we? Uh, silence in a marriage communicates something. 
It says that the relationship is broken, that the relationship is hindered, something's wrong. God, uh, the the grand God of the universe hasn't run out of words. Like he's not trying to come up with something to say. His silence is meant to demonstrate something to the people. And we see in later biblical revelation that the silence of God is a mark of God's judgment. Reading in Amos, God threatens to judge the people. This is again a scene of of their waywardness, their rebellion. And he's going to judge them with a famine. But it's it's not the kind of famine that you or I might expect. I think the words will be up here. Uh, If we could flip back to verse 11. The days are coming. This is the declaration of the Lord God. When I will send a famine through the land. And it's not a famine of bread or a thirst for water. But it's going to be a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and roam from north to east. Seeking the word of the Lord. But they will not find it. So when God wants to demonstrate his judgment to a people, he, 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 he's silent. There's a famine of the words of the Lord. Or in Psalm 74, the psalmist, he's wilting under the judgment of God. The psalm begins, God, have you rejected us forever? And what evidence does he give that God may have abandoned them? There are no signs, this is verse 9 of Psalm 74. There are no signs for us to see. There's no longer a prophet And none of us knows how long this is going to last. God's silent. There's no word from the Lord. He's not speaking. So it's easy to miss this most important reminder about the character of God at the start of 1 Samuel 3. Anytime God speaks, it's an act of his grace. He does not owe us his word. So when God breaks into this story at a time when visions are rare, when silence is normative, we are witnessing a stunning act of God's grace to speak to a sinful people when he could continue to remain silent. He could continue to allow the waywardness of the people to run forward unabated, but he doesn't. He steps into a story with his word. And friends, what a great reminder for us. He continues to do this for us today, doesn't he? God steps into our story even though he does not owe us a word. And he speaks. When we meet with him in private, when we talk to him in prayer, when we sense his leadership in our lives, friends, this is a gift of God's grace. We who are bebopping our way through life at our own pace and our own direction and in unique, multifaceted ways, God gets our attention. Don't miss the fact that God doesn't owe you that. That is a gift of God's grace. Anytime God uses his word to get your attention, it is an act of grace. When others around us remind us of truth about God's word in places of doubt or discouragement, this too is an act of God's grace. And when we exist within a church that helps us see and understand God's word, and challenges us, calls us to obedience. Friends, this is a gift of God's grace. God doesn't owe you his word this morning. Delraph Davis commenting on this text and the theme of the local church's ministry writes this. If contemporary believers have a church where social activities, committee meetings, and nifty programs have not eclipsed the place of the word of God, 
if the teaching of the word of God stands at the heart of the church's life, if the pulpit ministry is where the scriptures are accurately, clearly, and helpfully preached, then friends, you are rich in the grace of God. May that be true of Christ's fellowship. So God calls as an act of grace. He also calls specifically. He calls a person to himself in 1 Samuel 3. Let's continue this story. He calls a person to himself. So he steps into silence and speaks. That's grace. He steps into silence and speaks to a person whom he calls to himself. So Samuel answers, I'm in verse 4. Here I am. He ran to Eli and he said, here I am. You called me. I didn't call you, Eli replied. Go back and lie down. So he went and lay down. Once again, the Lord called Samuel. Samuel got up, went to Eli, and he said, here am I. You called me. I didn't call you, my son. He replied, go back and lie down. Verse 7, Samuel did not yet know the Lord because the word of the Lord had not been revealed to him. And once again, for the third time, the Lord called Samuel. He got up, went to Eli, and he said, here I am. You called me. Then Eli understood that the Lord was calling, and then the specific, the boy. The Lord's calling the boy. So in our passage this morning, we see God calling a specific person to himself, Samuel. There's a personal name given here. I want you to notice the reality throughout the Old Testament that God does not merely make an all call. Uh, It's not what we might do in a time of desperation. Hey, is anyone there? Anybody listening? It's not what he does. He speaks personally to individuals in a time and place of his choosing. And notice the comment in verse 7 of your, of your text, kind of an editorial comment here. Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. This, this is a different claim than the claim made in chapter 2 about Eli's sons, where their ongoing rebellion showed that they did not know the Lord. Here, young Samuel had not heard from the Lord before. He, he didn't know God's voice. He didn't know his word. So God stepped into time and space and revealed himself to Samuel. We see this pattern played out in the famous calling passages throughout the Old Testament. Moses, God steps into time and space and reveals himself to a person whom he calls to himself to be an agent of his mission to the people. Remember the passage from Isaiah 6 great famous vision of the prophet seeing the Lord and specifically revealing himself to Isaiah in such a way that he ends, here am I, send me. God specifically steps into time and space and reveals himself to a person whom he calls to himself. And this paradigm continues into the New Testament with Jesus' followers, the disciples. He doesn't merely show up on the scene and make an all call. He comes to people. He calls Matthew to follow him. He calls Peter to follow him. He specifically reveals his grace to people and invites them to follow him. And this is the pattern we see continue to our salvation. God saves people. For me, it was the summer after freshman year in college. God stepped into time and space, and though I'd heard the gospel growing up in a Baptist church, on the late night basketball court in Winsboro, South Carolina, hearing the story of a dude who was one year older than me and lived a similar story, testified to God's saving grace in his life. 
And in a moment in time and space, God stepped into my story, convinced me of my sinfulness and the righteousness of Christ and caused me to repent of my sin and trust in him. Friends, this was specific God's grace to, to me as an individual. And for many of you, you have similar, though different, stories. The unique, multifaceted, personal way that God steps into our story with his grace and calls us to himself. And it's really important that we reflect on this personal nature of the call of God on our lives. Often, uh, I get the opportunity to ask people to testify to their, their faith story. And, and many times people will say something like this. So, you know, so tell me, how did you come to faith in Jesus? And they'll say, well, uh, I've always been a Christian. Or uh, uh, my family's just, just Christian. Okay. I'm, I'm not, not minimizing that claim, and yet it does make me nervous. Because it's not our family line or our life history that makes one right with God. But it's whether you personally have heard from God, responded in faith to his offer of salvation. God speaks to people by name. Then how does, how does he do that? Okay, so he steps into stories with grace. He calls people, individuals to himself. Then he, he does it through his word. God calls through his word. So I'm going to read in verse 9, 1 Samuel 3. He told Samuel, go lie down. If he calls you, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. That's got to be a weird experience, right? Go back and lay down and just say, speak. The Lord came, stood there, and called as before. Samuel, Samuel. Samuel responded, speak, for your servant is listening. Then the Lord said to Samuel, I'm about to do something in Israel that will cause everyone to hear, who hears about it to shudder. On that day, I will carry out against Eli everything that I said about his family from beginning to end. I told you I'm going to judge his family forever because of the iniquity he knows about. His sons are cursing God, and he's not stopping them. Therefore, I have sworn to Eli's family, the iniquity of Eli's family will never be wiped out by either sacrifice or offering. All right, so God calls through his word. I want to belabor this point just a bit. That, that seems like a commonsensical claim. God calls through his word simple common sense point. But I think we could be helped by thinking like, what else could God have done in this moment? He could have revealed himself through some form of cryptic signs to Samuel. He could have given him what amounts to an escape room puzzle to try to figure out. Decipher these hidden clues and, and you'll figure out what are my purposes for you and for the next step in my mission, but he doesn't. He speaks in human words that Samuel can understand. And the words that he says to Samuel aren't necessarily the words that Samuel wants to hear. More on this in a minute. They're not necessarily words that Samuel wants to hear. They're not easy words, but they are understandable words. They're not cryptic. And he tells Samuel here, in the first of many words that he's going to speak to Samuel, the first thing is, I'm going to judge Eli's line. You'll remember the, the line of the unholy priest. And we're told here a point that I made earlier. Why, is, why does the accusation come against Eli in chapter 2? The text tells us here. Because the, 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 the boys are cursing God and Eli hasn't stopped them. He hasn't intervened. He hasn't done what he should have done as a leader. 
God continues to speak in this way through the prophets of old. This is a common theme of God's word from this point in the scriptures forward. God raises up prophets who are going to speak, and their message is really going to be twofold. I mean, if you want to boil down the latter half of the Old Testament, two, two big themes. Uh, uh, God is a God of grace. He's going to save a people for himself, but he's also a God of justice, and he's going to judge sin. These are the twin themes of the prophets. I'm going to judge sin, but I'm going to preserve a line. And then, just at the right time, he sends Jesus. The final in a long line of prophets who announces both judgment for sin and hope for salvation through his work. The writer of Hebrews opens his letter this way. Long ago, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. God speaks his word through the word, Jesus Christ. Our most direct, clear, and clear access to that word, to testimony about who Christ is, the one who the Hebrews writer goes on to say perfectly reflects the imprint of the nature of God. Our most clear access to that word is found in the scriptures. The treasure that perfectly testifies to Christ Jesus. So it is through that word, the scriptures that we hold before us, that God continues to call, to lead, to speak to his people. Which leads us to another really important both-and tension that I, I, I want to double-click on. Last week I mentioned the both-and reality that God's grace can save even the greatest sinner. Since no one's too far gone. And yet it's also true that some people harden in their sin before their death and they're unwilling and unable to repent to the offer of salvation. This week we have a both-and reality at play as well. So on the one hand, I want to highlight that the primary way that God continues to call his people is through his written word in the scriptures. God speaks today through the written word through the scriptures, where we see the reality of who Jesus is and what he came to do. And he does this in diverse ways, whether we're reading them personally, whether we're hearing them taught in church, whether we're hearing the scriptures discussed in small group, or whether God by his spirit is bringing the pa a passage of scripture to mind at just the right time. God uses his word like a double-edged sword to penetrate our hearts to expose our sin, to encourage us in righteousness, and to spur us on in good deeds. In a miraculous work of God's Spirit, the very same passage, and this hopefully this is what's happening this morning, the very same passage of Scripture can land on people in diverse ways, can provoke and encourage and challenge each individual. This is why the psalmist speaks of the Word of God as a light and a guide for our steps. In other places, it's a treasure. It's a feast. So, here's the, the both intention. We should rightly be skeptical of extra-biblical revelations from God. While God calls us personally, we shouldn't expect 
personal revelations as a normative guide for Christian morality or for understanding God's plan of salvation. God has spoken authoritatively through his word. And his normative means is using that word to point us to the truth of salvation and the path of righteous living. And at the same time, I don't want my own fears or your fears of extra biblical claims of hearing from God to detract us from the fact that God is still personally attentive to you. He is still a speaking God who is tender and close to you. He's still personally at work in the lives of his children through his Holy Spirit. In fact, John 16, 13 speaks of the promise of the Holy Spirit guiding believers into all truth. So we should expect as a normative mark of a follower of Jesus that the spirit that dwells within us is guiding, provoking, challenging, even directing us. So the leading of the spirit, we're we're not talking some mystical, extra biblical revelation. But sensitivity to the Spirit's direction in our lives should be normative. We should expect God to bring truth to mind, to put a person on our heart to pray for, to cause seemingly coincidental things to happen that put us right in the path of someone that we need to speak to, to burden our hearts to seek forgiveness when we've overstepped or sinned. This ongoing sensitivity to God's call should mark mature followers of Jesus. And in that sense, we should expect to hear from God on a regular basis. God speaks through his word, and he uses his word, empowered by his spirit, to lead, guide, and direct us. Then last idea. God calls through those he calls. God calls through those he calls. So he calls us an act of grace. He calls a person. He calls through his word. It's normative means. And then he calls through those he calls. So verse 15, Samuel lays down until the morning, opens the doors of the Lord's house. He was afraid to tell Eli the vision. I mean, you would be as well, right? But Eli called to him and said, Samuel, my son, here am I. Answer Samuel. What is the message that he gave you? Eli asked, don't hide it from me. May God punish you and do so severely if you hide anything from me that, I to- that he told you. So Samuel told him everything, and he did not hide anything from him. Eli responded, he is the Lord. Let him do what he thinks is good. There's a lot of theology packed in that verse. Samuel grew. The Lord was with him. He fulfilled everything Samuel prophesied. All Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was a confirmed prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear in Shiloh because there he revealed himself to Samuel by his word. God calls through those he calls. The final note is one that brings this passage full circle. God is speaking, but he's speaking through a person. He did it through Moses earlier. Remember the the passage Patrick read. Moses is going to go and get Pharaoh's attention on God's behalf. Now that's, I mean, it's, it's comical in its essence, isn't it? Clearly God could have gotten Pharaoh's attention any way he wanted to. We're on the heels of the, the, the uh, on the brink of the, the miracles that he's going to act. He clearly can get Pharaoh's attention any way he wants. But he appoints a human agent who's going to speak on his behalf, and he does it here again. He's already told Eli that he's going to judge him for his sin. But he calls Samuel and appoints him with a task, with a responsibility to echo his word 
to Eli. And Samuel does it. He declares to Eli what the Lord has said. Interestingly, this is quite the contrast, isn't it? Verse 13 notes that Eli um, didn't speak clearly. He didn't speak up. And now God is calling Samuel to speak up to him. He does what Eli would not do. He has a word from the Lord, and he's bold to declare it. God calls through those he calls. The same pattern holds for us today. God can call people from sin any way he wants to. But the most common way he's going to get attention, people's attention, is through your mouth. Through you speaking up. It's true for those who are living in wholesale rebellion from God. But it's also true of those within the church. The most common way that God is going to get the attention of those in your small group, your circle of friends, is you having the boldness and clarity to say, brother or sister, what you are doing is not right. Brother or sister, turn from your sin. Brother or sister, I love you so much that 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 line of thought is destroying you. That pattern of action that's going to lead you down a path that's going to, going to end terribly. This is really hard in a southern be nice culture, isn't it? We don't do this super well. But to have the conviction to say what I see in God's word is such that I am compelled to bring this before you. What separates this from harsh words of judgmentalism is an offer of grace found through faith in Christ Jesus. It is not a call to mere morality, but it is a call to turn from a rebellion and trust in faith in Christ. In many ways, you are pointing them to the hope found in this table that we're getting ready to receive. That you who are once cut off can be brought near because of the finished work of Christ. This is not a bold all call for any and all. Those who have come to faith in Christ may come to this table. This is a personal invitation. To those who have repented of their sins and trusted in Christ, you may come. And the glorious offer of grace this morning is that that offer does extend to all people. That you this morning, dead in your trespasses and sins, can turn to Christ and be saved. That maybe in the manifold wisdom of God, your appointed day is today. That God would speak to you and call you from rebellion, cause you to trust in Christ. If that's you, each week as we gather, there are a couple of ways that you can demonstrate that uh, as we sing final songs and as the service dismisses, we have pastors and ministry leaders at all the main exits. We'd love for you just to grab us and pull us aside and say, Man, I really feel, uh, you don't even have to know the words. I feel churned up. I've, I feel uneasy about my state before God. I want to trust in Jesus. We'd love to help you with that. Also, if that's super intimidating to you, you don't feel like you know us very well, there are cards and the seat backs in front of you, and there's a box there. You can sit. I'd love a pastor to reach out to me. You just check that, drop it in the black boxes in the front and the back. That gives us an opportunity to follow up with you throughout the week in an appropriate way. Just hear your story and talk about what it means for you to follow Christ. If this morning, though, the story of 1 Samuel 3 is your story, God has stepped into time and space, 
and he has extended the offer of salvation to you and you've trusted in Christ, we're invited to the table this morning where we celebrate the rich beauty of Christ who did for us what we could not do for ourselves, offered his life as a substitute for our sins and rose victorious as the promised Messiah, defeating Satan, sin, and death. And perfectly, permanently, forever, the hope that we have that we will gather around the table of God forever and enjoy the reality of what he has accomplished for us. I'm going to invite the servers to come, the band to come now. We're going to distribute the elements of this meal. As that is being distributed and as the music is playing, give you an opportunity to reflect, to pray, to thank God that he still cares about you enough to speak to you. And after the elements have been distributed, we'll receive them together as a church.
This meal reminds us that God has spoken through his son, the exact imprint of the radiance and nature of God. Luke records these words, that Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, broke it, gave it to them. As he given thanks, he said, take, eat, do this in remembrance of me. And after dinner, the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Church, do this in remembrance of him. Our God, we thank you that you have called a people to yourself that those of us who know you through faith in Christ step in to the line of those who you have called to yourself. We thank you that as a supernatural act of grace, you spoke, you spoke, your words are powerful. Your words accomplish what you purpose. We thank you that not only have you called us to yourself through Christ, but you continue to speak to us. We thank you for the treasure that is your word. We thank you for the gift that is the indwelling of your spirit. We thank you for the beauty that it is to move through this life knowing that we are, we are walking with you. Like you, are, you are with us. You are attentive. You are calling. You are pressing. You are provoking. You are encouraging. We thank you for the the beautiful tenderness to know that you are close. As we sing, as we watch new believers baptized, would you encourage our hearts with the beauty that is to know you as our God? We ask for the sake of Christ. Church, please stand with us and sing this story of the wondrous mystery.